from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Dossie. I wanted to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name's Jenna Johnson. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, February 17th. Today, why it's so cold in Texas and what went wrong with the power grid. Plus, attempting to land a car on Mars. So Texas right now suffering a one-two punch. First, they had historically low temperatures, especially Tuesday night, the coldest air since 1989. This is Matthew Capucci, and as you can probably tell, he is a meteorologist at The Post. And now they had one winter storm, a second one ongoing currently, moving east out of the area, but after dropping about a half inch to three inches of snow across much of the DFW Metroplex, and of course, icing, significant icing, over a third of an inch in Austin. And do we know how many people have died so far in Texas because of these ultra-low temperatures? So far, our latest words are more than a dozen, but I expect that number to climb. And I think this is one of those cases where we might actually see a higher death toll than we've seen with some hurricanes in the past, especially because this is one of those excess mortality cases. We're not seeing people who are being hit by debris or things like that, like you'd see in a hurricane. This is really disproportionately affecting the elderly, the vulnerable people who are in lower income brackets, because they're the ones who don't really have the means to escape the cold air. Uh, Like you can escape uh, storm surge or wind, cold air you can't really run from. It's ubiquitous across the plains. So why is it that we are seeing this these extreme temperatures in places like Texas right now? So to understand what's happening right now and what has happened with this system, we actually need to go back over a month to early January. Now we have the polar vortex up over the North Pole. It's like this big bowling ball of cold and low pressure that just normally sits up there and swirls. And the stronger that is, the more it bottles up all the cold air. The weaker it is, the easier it is for that cold air to spill south. Now what happened was a weather system weakened the polar vortex. It kind of you know bumped into it, knocked it off kilter. And it's just like what happens if you have a, a cup of coffee, you're, you're stirring it, all of a sudden, you know, you shake that cup of coffee, suddenly the whirlpool in the middle gets all discombobulated. And that's exactly what happened with the polar vortex. So then the polar vortex was weak. It doesn't have as much force to hold on to the cold air and lobes of it start spilling south. And we saw that late in January into early February across Europe, across Asia and into North America as well. These are very narrow shots of cold. In fact, the plains have been colder than Alaska. Alaska seeing temperatures in the uh, mid to upper 20s in many areas. The plains, they've been minus 10, minus 20 degrees. So it's crazy to think that we are colder than the north slope of Alaska right now. And so the fact that you're seeing these extreme temperatures in places that have never seen them before, never seen them in a long time, is that something that is attributable to climate change? I think it's a little early to say at this point. We have a number of great scientists who do attribution studies to figure out what percent of an event might be catalyzed by, exacerbated by climate change. I will say that periodic uh, episodes of cold like this are frequent every couple generations. So not overly common, but not unheard of. We saw it back in the 80s. We saw that in the late uh, 1800s. And so we're bound to see events like this 
every time to time. I, I think there is ongoing research to suggest that extra wavy patterns in the jet stream that allow these dips of cold air to surge very far south may be linked to a warming world, especially because the jet stream is weaker than it traditionally is. And that's something we see more frequently with climate change. So uh, I won't say this is caused by climate change. I don't think at this point we can firmly make that link. I know there are certain elements of the extreme weather that may be connected, but we really have to wait for the studies to come out now. What has it been like for you to see what started out as like some kind of unusually cold temperatures in some surprising places really snowball into something that is scary with life or death stakes? We knew this would be uh, one of those events that could have the impact uh, even more widespread than a hurricane, especially for these vulnerable populations. And it's always one of those events that makes you cringe when you're forecasting something that you know is going to disrupt people's lives. An awful lot of households in Texas are without electricity after the bitter cold weather and a, and a pretty big snowstorm swept most of the state. This is Will England. He covers energy for The Post. As of this morning, there were about three million households still without power. And unlike blackouts we might be used to elsewhere in the country, this was not a problem of the of a cascading failure on the grid itself, overloading, that sort of thing, but of power plants being unable to generate electricity. In a few cases, it was because of wind turbines freezing, but the general problem has been that natural gas-fired power plants have been unable to keep the gas flowing and therefore unable to keep the electricity flowing. And I've heard a lot of people over the past couple of days talk about how these problems during this weather highlights some of the bigger issues that we have with the grid and the electrical infrastructure that we have in Texas, that we have in this country. But when people use that term, I'm not really sure I understand what exactly the grid means. Like, what are we talking about here? Well, the grid is the power plants, the transmission wires, the providers of electricity, and the and the regulators who are, you know, guiding it to, to various sources. So I think altogether we can call that that the grid. If I bought electricity directly from a power plant, uh, which I, you know, I can't as a resident do, then I would not be on the grid. You know, I'd just be getting it directly. But the whole system in Texas is very interconnected. So there's a lot of balancing and shifting back and forth. That's also true of the country as a whole. But outside of Texas, it's on a much, much larger scale. I'm going to simplify things here, but we essentially have two regions, an east region and a west region. And there's lots of power sharing among those regions. So, for instance, uh, if there were, if New York State needed more power than it was producing, it could get it from Pennsylvania or from Quebec if they had power to, to spare. Um, on a normal day, if California needed more power, it could get it from Oregon or, or perhaps Arizona. Texas is unique among the 48 continental states in having an, essentially its own grid. It does have some connections to the rest of the country, but they're, they're minor. And so Texas has this kind of go-it-alone ethos in electricity. And why is it that Texas isn't better connected so there, there would be other potentials of places to draw from to be able to make up for what they can't produce right now? 
Well, it, it has its roots that go way back to World War II when Texas utilities agreed to, to join together in a, in a sort of interconnected network. And it was the first example of that in the United States. And as that idea became more and more popular, the federal government began sponsoring what they call independent system operators, these sort of regional groupings of utilities under the regulations of the federal Energy Regulatory Commission, Texas opted out. Texas said, we already have our system, and they struck a deal with Washington where they weren't subject to the same kind of regulations that the rest of the country is. And and why did they do that, or, or what are the implications of that? Well, I mean, <laughs> they did it because Texas likes to do things its own way. <laughs> and they had that ability because all of the energy transfers are in-state, so the federal government tends to get involved when you have electrons crossing state lines or, you know, molecules of natural gas crossing state lines. So it's a big enough state and it's rich with its own energy. So they felt they didn't need to join into with the rest of the country. It's a Texas thing. Yeah, that feels very Texas from like a personality standpoint of like, we got this. We generate all this power ourselves. We don't need to depend on anyone else. We can do this on our own and nobody bother us in our like energy infrastructure. That uh, That's it in a nutshell. So now that these problems have come up with the grid in Texas and its ability to keep people warm, to frankly keep people safe, I've seen sort of different arguments for like what the central problem is here and some people blaming the fact that there is more of a push toward renewable energy like wind turbines and whether or not those few frozen wind turbines have created some kind of difference in the energy that has been available to Texans. But I'm wondering like how you have seen this become kind of a political fight of what the problem is and the cause for these shortages. Well, yeah, you're right. Uh, Republicans in particular have been blaming the frozen wind turbines for causing this and saying this is why you shouldn't rely on alternative sources of energy. This is why we need fossil fuels. The truth is that some turbines have frozen. Output from wind is down in Texas. It wouldn't have to be that way. They could have uh, spent money on winterizing the turbines as many, many countries do. And then they you know, they could still be operating. But that aside, the drop-off in electricity produced by wind is extremely small compared to the drop-off in electricity produced by natural gas because those natural gas plants have uh, gone offline. That's really, that's been the real problem. And people in Texas, I think for the most part, understand that. And I've noticed that some Texas politicians have different messages for the home audience than they do for a national audience. What do you mean by that? Uh, They're telling the people at home that this is a problem and it's going to take a while to fix. And it's uh, it's not something that Texas is just going to bounce back from. But it also seems like if this weather is so strange and so abnormal for what you usually see in Texas or anywhere close to Texas, is there really an expectation that a state like Texas would spend all this money on winterizing if Texas like doesn't generally have winters like this? Like, what is the expectation for how much they were supposed to be prepared for what are really incredibly abnormal and historic uh, conditions? Well, I think that's a really good question, and it's there. There isn't an easy answer to that. 
you know, if if the city of Houston had been spending $25 million a year buying snowplows, people would say, wait a minute, why are you wasting all this money on snowplows? Mm-hmm. The argument, though, for being ready for winter, at least to some extent, is that this is rare, but it's not, this is not like a, a once in a century storm. It was almost as cold for almost as long in 2011. And there were uh, investigations following that cold spell that said, you know, we really need to be more prepared for winter and we need to take steps to winterize um, our equipment. Some people argue that the financial devastation caused by this current event, including the deaths of Texas residents, is greater than money that could have been spent over the last decade winterizing the system. I don't think we'll really know the answer to that until... You know, we can sift through everything when this is all over, but it's a, that's another that's the other side of that coin. And while you can say that that the cold weather right now is incredibly anomalous to what people would usually see in Texas, I do think it's worth thinking more just about extreme weather generally and the fact that many parts of this country are going to see different conditions and different temperatures and different types of weather than they are typically accustomed to. And so I wonder what you think the situation in Texas right now says, if anything, about the general country's state of preparedness for thinking about how our electricity is going to function in a world where we get a lot more weather surprises than we're used to. I think the lesson from Texas is that this is a failure at the root of the system rather than in the tendrils, in other words, the the wires heading out to people's homes all across the state. And that is really an alarm, I guess I would say, an alarm bell for the rest of the country. It might be time to say, okay, let's let's look at our foundational infrastructure, the energy system, and is it up to snuff? Will England is an energy reporter for The Post. Matthew Capucci is a meteorologist. And now, one more thing from science reporter Joel Achenbach. So Thursday, NASA is going to try to do one of the hardest things that it has ever tried to do, which is to land a rover on Mars. NASA's Mars Perseverance rover left Earth six months ago. Now we are gearing up for touchdown on the red planet. One of the lead engineers described it as, we're trying to land a car on Mars. The rover will attempt to land in Jezero Crater on February 18th. It's the most difficult landing site on Mars ever attempted, but the Perseverance rover and the team are ready. No one is under any illusions that this is all automatic. There's a lot of ways things can go wrong. And there's pretty much just one way it it can go right. Signal to us. Control air. 50 meters per second. 500 meters in altitude. NASA has done this before, as we know, back in 2012. We found a nice flat place. We're coming in ready for skycraft. Curiosity landed on Mars, and there were earlier rovers that also were successful. You, Jeff, is good. Touchdown confirmed. We're safe on Mars. Time to see what I'm pretty happy to take it.
but, and this is kind of a big but, this one is a little different because they're trying to land in some really dicey terrain. It's a, it's a crater called Jezero Crater that's filled with cliffs and boulders and gullies and sand traps and places where you would not want to land. And to pull that off, they are giving this rover Perseverance some artificial intelligence to look at the terrain as it's coming in, compare it to maps that it has stored, and figure out, well, I want to go over here. I don't want to go over there. And all this has to happen autonomously um, with this new navigation system, which has not been used before. It's like uh, trying to make it think a little bit the way Neil Armstrong was thinking when he landed the lunar module, the Eagle, on the moon in, in July of 1969. So the vehicle will actually try to figure out where's the nearest reachable, safest landing spot that it can go to, and then fly there. NASA did a press briefing a couple of weeks ago in which they talked about uh, the science and the engineering and the overall goals of the mission. So that kind of is your Neil Armstrong moment right there, right after backshell separation. It'll use its engines to fly up to about 700 meters or so to in search of the best possible place that it can reach at that point. I can't stress enough that it's really hard to do this, and it's not a sure thing that the rover will land safely. That's why they call the whole entry, descent, and landing period the seven minutes of terror, because it's just so, it's so dicey. That, that, that's I mean, like a the, real NASA term, the, the seven minutes of terror? You know, I'm not sure who came up with that term, but it's roughly seven minutes from when the spacecraft begins the maneuver to enter the atmosphere to when it's actually on the surface. Perseverance first hits the atmosphere uh, going well over 12,000 miles per hour and streaks across the sky like a meteor. It's got to um, deploy this heat shield and come in and sort of slow down to some degree. During that entry, it's got to survive the intense heating and deceleration that period while also using thrusters to steer toward the landing target. Then deploys the parachute. A large 70-foot diameter parachute. The heat shield falls away. Still traveling almost twice the speed of sound. Then rocket thrusters help lower it closer to the ground. And then there's a sky crane, which uh, lowers the rover on cables to the ground. And the backpack, as it were, is, is disengaged and flies away and crashes while the rover sits there nice and soft on the Martian surface, ideally. And because of how long it takes for radio signals to get back from Mars all the way to Earth. Perseverance has to do this all on our own. We can't help it during this period. But why would NASA want to land this rover in a place that is so dicey? If it has all of these gullies and cliffs and boulders and craters inside of craters, I mean, why not land it someplace that's safer and flatter and more reliable? Well, because science. <laughs> the team has been studying this site for quite a few years now. You know, the scientists want to explore this particular patch of Mars because there's an ancient river delta there. So within the crater, there's this formation of sediments that came flowing into it from a, a river back in the days when Mars was, was wet and much warmer. That delta tells us absolutely clearly there was a lake here. This was a very large lake. 
Uh, it was about 30 miles across, which is about the size of Lake Tahoe. And it was hundreds of feet deep. And those sediments, you know, could potentially have signs of, of ancient life. And that's the samples they want to get. They want to dig up samples of Mars, put them in little tubes, and sometime in the future, bring them back to Earth to study. Because it's a way of understanding the history of Mars and really the history of the solar system. So the scientists were clear. They want to go into Jezero Crater. That's the spot. Hmm. If you're an engineer... It looks really difficult. That it's high risk from a logistical standpoint, but also theoretically high reward in terms of what you can learn from the geology of this crater. That's exactly right. And the reason we do this, though, is that this will allow us to come up with the best possible set of samples to be brought back to Earth to answer the major questions that we have about Mars and about life. The rover actually has one device on it that is designed to turn carbon dioxide into oxygen, which is really just a test to see if they can take the atmosphere of Mars and turn it into something that astronauts could breathe uh, one of these days. You know, when will we put astronauts on Mars? Hard to say. I, you know, it's a, it's a long way away. It's a very, very harsh environment. But one of the goals of this mission, the Mars 2020 rover mission, as they call it, is, you know, is to set the ground for future human exploration of Mars. The rover exemplifies the spirit of exploration as it pulls on science, technology and human exploration to work to advance our goals in many areas. And perseverance, by its very name, describes the human spirit that gets us there. Joel Achenbach is a science reporter for The Post. Perseverance is expected to land on Mars on Thursday at 3.55 p.m. Eastern Time. And that's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We love to hear from the folks who listen to our show. Share your thoughts on today's episode by posting on Twitter with the hashtag PostReports, or you can always join our Facebook group. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 